I'm excited to be um, continuing and, and actually wrapping up our current series titled The Heart of a Disciple. We've been on this subject for about seven weeks, and we've been looking at the heart of a disciple, and, and many times we've talked about the heart of a disciple maker with this idea that, that disciples become disciple makers, that that's a natural progression, that if you are a disciple of Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, if you are learning how to trust and follow him and to do things the way he would if he were you, then a natural progression in that is that you become a disciple maker because if you're following a disciple maker, you become a disciple maker, and Jesus was the greatest disciple maker of all time. And I just have to celebrate some wonderful things that are happening in our church In this season, this season where I think Satan was hoping that everything Christianity-wise would just be put on hold or something, and it's not. We've been talking about our discipleship groups and our banding together uh, journals, and uh, we saw our first round of, of second journals go out in the last couple of weeks, meaning that people got their Bibles out and they wrote and they they read and they interacted with Scripture in this journal um, 160 times in the last six months since we made these available at the beginning of the year. I'm breaking into a new journal myself this week. Um, and so that is exciting. That means that people are establishing that habit or leaning into that habit in new and fresh ways. We have four new groups in the last seven weeks that that have started um, as a result of this. People are getting together, whether they meet online or in person. They're finding a way to carve out the time and spend time together in prayer and talking about what they're reading and holding each other accountable. And that's just phenomenal to see that happening. So um, it's exciting, and we've got new leaders. Um, There's new interest in additional groups. There's new people participating that hadn't participated before. And so we want to pray that that continues um, to grow through the rest of the year. And as we wrap up this series, just a reminder that as we ask the question uh, or look at what is at the heart of a disciple, we're asking the question, what propels a disciple of Jesus Christ to action? What's at the heart, the center, the core of emotion? And what directs the action that we take? And as we have looked at this, we've, we've covered a number of different topics. I try not to review the whole series because that takes up half my time. Uh, If you've missed any of the messages, I would strongly encourage you to go to our Facebook page and go to the video section and find uh, the week that you missed and watch that and catch up uh, with us. Last week, I talked about uh, that the heart of a disciple is undivided, that the heart of a disciple is undivided because our enemy understands the power of division. The power of division in relationships, whether those are marriages or teams or family relationships or friendships or just church family relationships or on out into the concentric circles, even out to the division in a nation or in the world around us. But our our Father, our Savior, understands the power of unity. And that's why his word instructs us to work towards unity interior to our own lives, that we would be one in heart and mind with him and with each other. And so our bottom line last week was that only an undivided heart can be fully united with Christ and with his mission. And that is the desire 
of the heart of a disciple, that we would be fully united with Christ and with his mission. And so the heart of a disciple longs for unity with Christ. So somewhat ironically, perhaps, today the, the title is broken. So we go from undivided to broken. And you think, ah, does that really work? And, and yes, actually it does work because the heart of a disciple breaks for the things that break God's heart. That's our bottom line today. We'll state that a number of times from a number of different angles, but that's a truth that we must understand, that the heart of a disciple breaks for the things that break God's heart. The heart of a disciple and the heart that is united with Christ breaks at the same places that his heart breaks, breaks at precisely the same place that the heart of God breaks. And I think there are two main things that break God's heart. There may be more. I think these are at the top of his list. And I think most other things that you could name would fit into one of these two categories. And that is unrepented sin and unredeemed sinners. I think few things break God's heart more than unrepented sin and unredeemed sinners. And so I want to look at each of those. And uh, we'll start in Psalm 51. It's one of the most beautiful uh, statements of repentance. It comes from one of the most egregious sins that you can find in Scripture. And so if you're not familiar with the story behind Psalm 51, I'll bring you up to speed. Um, If you have a Bible and you want to turn there, we'll spend some time there. If you want to grab one of the Bibles here in the worship center, it's on page 889. But the story behind Psalm 51 comes from David's sin with Bathsheba. And uh, just the broad strokes of that, David has been king for some time, and we're told that when it was the spring, the time when kings go out to war, David stayed back. He sent captains and generals out with his army, but he stayed back. And as he stayed back, he was wandering around on the roof of the palace, and he spied Bathsheba bathing one evening. And he desired her, and he called her to himself. And he slept with her, and he killed her husband, and claimed her as his own wife. Like, you take the Ten Commandments, he he got most of them uh, and broke them all in one little story. And he kind of almost sort of got away with it, so to speak, you could say. He kept it to himself, he hid it, and God sent the prophet Nathan to confront David in his sin. And in that moment... uh, David just was broken before God. He was broken over his sin, over the depth of his sin, over the severity of his sin. And he repents of his sin. And he wrote Psalm 51, we're told, out of that experience. And interestingly enough, the law called for his death. At this time, the law of Israel, the punishment for adultery was death, both for him and for Bathsheba. And yet, by God's grace, he was not put to death. And he becomes a great testimony. And maybe Psalm 51 and other psalms that he wrote after this and the way that he led the nation of Israel after this uh, brings uh, some measure of, of beauty from what was a very terrible uh, situation. But the son that was born from that first union uh, dies. And we're told that David um, grieved And then he went to the house of God and worshipped. And so I have to wonder, 
if maybe he wrote Psalm 51 while he was worshiping. And if you read those words with that in mind, um, and some other psalms, like Psalm 30, which was written for the dedication of the temple, uh, or Psalm 32, or Psalm 35, all of these are psalms that you could spend some time in this week that would um, maybe flow out of the subject matter that we're talking about today. But one thing that most people understand about David and have heard about David repeatedly is that David was a man after God's own heart. David was a man who pursued God wholeheartedly and pursued the heart of God to be his heart. And so I believe that as he wrote Psalm 51 and Psalm 30 and 32 and 35, uh, that he was truly heartbroken over his sin and that God used that experience in David's life to speak to us today. And this is the beauty and the miracle of God's word. And so I want to read a couple of verses at a time here, or chunks. Um, We won't get through the whole thing. I'd love to go through the whole thing. I would encourage you to get a good study Bible and read the whole thing and then get a piece of paper or journal out and write your thoughts and your response and what you sense God may be saying to you as you go through this. Um, But that would be your homework or your extra credit um, for this week's message. So uh, verses 1 and 2 begin with, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. And I love that the appeal here is to God's goodness, God's unfailing love, God's mercy, God's great compassion. He doesn't say, have mercy on me according to the depth of my sorriness like how sorry I am or what I did or how broken I am. He appeals to God. He understands God's heart. He understands uh, God's unfailing love and his great compassion. And he appeals to God according to that. But I also want you to look, not just at verse 1 and 2, but I want you to look at the, at the few words between the title of this psalm, Psalm 51, and verse 1. It says, For the director of music. And this is so impressive to me personally, that David didn't just deal with this internally and privately. He wrote a song about it. He sent it to the worship leader. He said, this is the song now that we're going to sing in this setting. He made it public. He didn't try to hide it anymore. And there is a power in confession that I think has been largely missed in Christianity since the Reformation. Like, this was one thing I think the Catholic Church really, really understood and understood well, that there is power in confession, in going to another human being and confessing your sin. You don't have to take out a front page ad. You don't have to write a songbook about it. But there is power in going to a person and confessing your sin to them and asking them to pray for you and asking them to pray that you will have victory over that sin. You see, the Word tells us in 1 John 1, 9, the Bible tells us that when we confess our sins to God, He is faithful and just to, to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we, we confess to God and God forgives us and He cleanses us. But James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to each other that you may be healed. 
There is a power and a healing that comes when we are vulnerable and we are transparent enough to confess our sins to someone else and to be vulnerable and to be open before them and to not hide it anymore, to shine the light on it, to take somebody down into the basement, so to speak, and let them see the things that we've done and confess them and experience healing and experience not just the forgiveness of God, but the healing of God. So there's tremendous power in that, and we see that just in these first couple of verses from David. But I also want to read uh, verses 7 through 12. As he continues this prayer, uh, he, he says, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And so again, there's, there's this request to, to be cleansed, to be purified, not just kind of washing the outside. Jesus talked, don't just wash the outside of the cup and dish, wash the inside to, to be purified. He, he says purified with hyssop. And, and as soon as he said that word hyssop, every Jewish person, every Hebrew child, woman, and man would think about the Passover, where the people of Israel were instructed to take hyssop, to dip it in the blood of the sacrificed lamb, and to spread that over the, the altar and the doorposts, or the, the lentil and post, sorry, of their home so that the angel of death would pass over them. There's this image of cleansing and being purified to be washed whiter than snow. I love that image. I like to ponder that image. You know what it's like to drive across South Dakota Prairie after a fresh, heavy snow? It's almost blinding because there's so much white. Everything's covered. What's whiter than that? What, what's whiter than that? And yet, that's the prayer. That's the desire. That's the hunger that he would not... Be, that God wouldn't look at him and see his sin. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. This is the joy that we have in Christ, that, that if we are in Christ and he is in us, when God looks at you, when he looks at me, he doesn't see my sin. He doesn't see my past. He sees Jesus' righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 talks about this great exchange where our unrighteousness is set aside and the righteousness of Christ is put on us so that when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ for those who are in Christ. This is good news. This is the best news ever, that God made him who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us, that those who believe in him might receive the adoption as sons, might be washed whiter than snow. And so, these, these verses in particular give us a picture of what repentance looks like. You can see David's heart breaking over his own sin. His heart is broken. He's not just upset that he got caught. He's heartbroken that he had something to get caught over. 
we see a tremendous desire to change. He's not just sad about what he did. He is motivated and has a tremendous desire to change. He is asking God to help him make that change. And we see overwhelming gratitude. Overwhelming gratitude represented in David here. And I think David also knew the second main thing that breaks God's heart. It's not just unrepented sin. It's also unredeemed sinners. And so flowing out of these verses, verses 13 through 15, we hear him say, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Do you see the link there? His heartbrokenness over his own sin leads to a heartbrokenness over others who are unredeemed in their own sin. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Pretty clear, David plans to get busy helping sinners to repent and to be redeemed. He's, he's focused on this. He's, he understands the connection because The heart of a disciple breaks for the things that break God's heart. The heart of a disciple is broken not only about it under over its own sin, but over unredeemed sinners, because unredeemed sinners break God's heart. But before we move on to that second part, I want to talk about repentance as this this theme of the Old and the New Testament. It's it's not just here in Psalm 51. It's pervasive throughout Scripture. Did you realize, and Charles Martin points this out in his beautiful, powerful book, What If It's True? You're looking for a book to read right now? Oh my goodness. I don't usually recommend books until I've finished them. I'm about halfway through this one, and I've, I've thought things like, I wish every Christian would read this book. I wish every pastor would read this book. But he points out the first public statement in the ministries of Jesus, John the Baptist, Peter, Paul, and John, who writes to, five, to the, the seven churches in Revelation, five of the seven churches, the message is repent. Jesus' first public message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is God, or the kingdom of heaven is near. John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, he stands up. He basically says a three-point sermon. You killed him. God raised him. Say you're sorry. That's the message of Acts chapter 2. It's a message of repentance. Paul, over and over and over, urges people to repent, to repent. And then five of the seven churches in Revelation are instructed to repent. The New Testament from beginning to end is about repentance. Repentance is a change of mind, a change of thinking, a change of direction. The, he, the Greek word is metanoia, which I don't have on a slide because I didn't plan to talk about it, but, but it's metanoia. It means to change the way you think. You're going in this direction and you repent from going in that direction and you turn 180 degrees and you go in the opposite direction. So any area of our lives that is moving away from God, away from his will, away from his desire as revealed in word, as soon as we're aware of that, to repent of that is not just to feel bad about it. It's not just to say you're sorry about it. It's to stop doing it, to turn 180 degrees and move back towards God, back towards his will, back towards what his word reveals as the truth and as his desire for us. 
And so 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, gives us one of the clearest statements on repentance. It says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. I have never, in 11 years as a pastor, had a conversation with somebody that says, I was trapped in sin, I was a slave to sin, I repented of that sin and moved 180 degrees from it, and it's the worst decision I ever made. I wish I could go back and be enslaved to that sin again. I have never had that conversation. There is no regret from repentance. Sure, you might miss it once or twice. You might think, you know, like, let's just be honest. A lot of the things that we repent of, sin is fun, or you ain't doing it right. It starts out fun. It turns into not being so much fun, doesn't it, when you're a slave to it, when you're trapped in it. But I've never talked to somebody that said, I, had, I was just overwhelmed with conviction and godly sorrow over my sin. I was heartbroken for my sin. I repented. I confessed it to somebody else. They were agents of God's healing and forgiveness in my life. I turned 180 degrees, and I wish I hadn't. Nobody says that. They always say, I want other people to know the freedom. I want other people to know that that weight doesn't have to be carried anymore, that you don't have to carry guilt and shame. You can repent. You can be made clean. You can be healed. You can move forward in faith. Sometimes it takes a while. Sometimes it takes multiple times. If the sin is deep, if the roots are deep, it takes some time. Like, you know, the nasty weeds, it's so easy to just pull the top off of, but the root's still down there. Sometimes you got to do some excavation, or God has to do some excavation in your heart to dig that completely out and to heal it and to bring some healing to it and to replace what was there with something good, with something beautiful. Paul puts it this way in Romans 2.4. Do you show contempt for the riches of his God's kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance, to lead you to that change of mind? He talks in Romans 12, a couple chapters later, about being renewed in our minds. No longer conformed to the patterns of this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds, being changed, being transformed through our repentance. It's meant, it has a purpose to lead us to repentance. And honestly, this is an issue of lordship for us. Because if the Lord says repent and you don't repent, then he's not Lord of that area of your life. And I think this is why the New Testament refers to Jesus as Savior 16 times and Lord over 300 times. Because he knows we have more issues with lordship than saviorship. And he knows that there is more healing and there is more reconciliation that can take place as we make him Lord of every area of our lives. Not just let him into the foyer and leave him sitting there, but take him into the sitting room, take him into the living room, take him into the kitchen, take him downstairs, give him the master key, let him root around and pull, what's this? Let's deal with it. Does it belong here? No, it doesn't, sir. Okay, let's get rid of it and, and go through this process room by room in our house so that nothing is left that doesn't bear his image and doesn't bring him glory. And it's not just a New Testament thing. It's an Old Testament thing too. This idea of repentance. And I think part of the costliness of the sacrifices that were required for sin was meant to motivate us to repentance. It's like, man, I don't want to keep slaughtering a sheep every time I do that. Maybe I'll quit doing that. But look at one of the most famous 
uh, scriptures in all of the Old Testament. It's one that you see always around the National Day of Prayer. It's on a lot of plaques that people put on their walls. It's Second Chronicles 7.14, where God says, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and will forgive their sin and will hear their land. You see the verbs there. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, will pray, will seek my face, and turn from their sin. That's the repentance part. And unfortunately, three out of four ain't good. If you do the first three, but you don't do the fourth one, there's, there's no healing. There's no, there's no change. We have to turn from our wicked ways. Because unrepented sin God, breaks God's heart. And it breaks the heart of a disciple. And because repentance from sin is the foundation for intimacy with God. That in those areas where we have turned from our sin, where we have repented, that's the foundation for true intimacy with God, being known and knowing God. And it's a powerful, powerful thing. So as a reminder, two main things that break God's heart. Unrepented sin, which we've talked about, and unredeemed sinners. Unrepented sin and unredeemed sinners. Because the heart of a disciple breaks where God's heart breaks. We need to be heartbroken over these things. The first in our own lives and the second in the lives of the people around us. And that brings us to Jesus and to his divine rescue mission on this earth. It was to redeem sinners. That was the main number one objective was to redeem sinners. And the whole world is full of sinners. Like everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet Peter says in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's the heart of the Father. He wants everyone to come to repentance. He's patient. He's patient with you and you and you and you. And the eyes of every person that you look into, God is patient with them, desiring that none should perish and all should come to repentance, should come to confess to God and to someone else their sin, to experience cleansing and forgiveness and healing. And we're told in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, that in the fullness of time, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. God understood that there was, a, there was an opportune time, an opportune moment, and that's exactly when Jesus came. Not too soon, not too late. Exactly when Jesus came. And he will come back at the opportune moment. God knows it. We don't. We have work to do until it happens. And he is, the only reason he would delay is that none would perish and all would come to repentance. And so this all wraps up when Jesus gives his clearest, most concise statement of why he came. It's in Luke 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. He came to seek and save what was lost. That was why he came. 
That was why he came to earth. That was why he lived a perfect, sinless life. That was why he laid his life down on the cross. That we would not have to carry the weight of our sin. That we would not have to die unredeemed. That every single person could hear the good news, could respond in faith, and could experience cleansing and forgiveness and healing. And that's why our mission statement here at Linwood is to reach people for Christ, to give them a place to belong, and to help them grow in their faith. And our vision is to be and increasingly become a family of families, a healthy family of families. In healthy families, people can confess their sins to each other and experience healing. And that's our vision here, is that we would do that. We would be and increasingly become a place where people can find not just forgiveness from God, but healing through relationships with each other, healthy relationships. And Jesus spoke uh, this beautiful sort of image in Matthew 9, verses 37 38. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. You walk out those doors into that community and that world, the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. And so we ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. We need more workers. We need more workers that are heartbroken over their own sin, have confessed it, have experienced forgiveness, have experienced healing, and are heartbroken at the unredeemed sinners that you see every time you walk around out there. There's unredeemed sinners that need to hear the goodness, that need to be loved back into the kingdom of God and loved back into the family of God. And I, I wrote, I, I said this prayer last, last week at the end of service. I just said it kind of off the cuff, ad lib, the world needs more disciples. And I haven't been able to get that thought out of my mind. Like the world needs more disciples, passionate followers of Jesus Christ who are taking him into a lost and dying world. The world desperately needs more disciples to reach people for Christ. That's evangelism. That's spreading the good news. That's being an angel to somebody. That's what that word evangelism, it has the word angel right in the middle. To be a bearer of good news, to be a messenger of good news. The world needs us to reach more people for Christ. The world needs us to give those people a place to belong, a safe place, a healthy place, a place that they can come, a place that they can hear the word, a place that they can develop a relationship where they would be able to openly confess their sin and to be healed and to be transformed. That's community. That's where we experience community together is that sense of belonging. And it happens when they walk through here. It happens when they come across the stream on Facebook. And it happens uh, when you invite them to your banding together group, your discipleship group, or to another small group, or you develop a relationship with somebody with the express purpose of helping them learn to trust and follow Jesus. That is discipleship. And it can change everything in a human life. It can change everything in a human heart. And the world desperately needs more disciples to help them grow in their faith. To say, I don't have all the answers. I may not even be able to fill your cup, but I will empty mine. I will take what God has given me and I will pour it into your cup. And I will ask, answer your questions the best I can. And I will love on you and I will accept you and I will not condemn you or judge you. That's, that's what we're talking about and help people grow in their faith. Helping people to grow as they trust and follow Jesus. 
And so there are all kinds of excuses not to do this right now because, I mean, it's COVID and, you know, everything's political and everything else. And yet, I want to encourage you to take, a, instead of saying, I can't because, to write out a sentence that says, I could if. Instead of saying, I can't because of this or this or this reason, I could if. And I've used this example before with something like tithing. Oh, I can't tithe because. Replacing that with, I could tithe if. Or, I can't be a disciple maker because. Versus, I could be a disciple maker if. And it requires a different way of thinking. And a friend of mine, uh, we were having lunch a couple of weeks ago, and he mentioned this nine-dot test, and I hadn't thought about this for a long time, or this nine-dot exercise. Maybe you've seen this before, but the idea is that you put nine dots, and you challenge people to connect all nine dots with four unbroken lines. And so if you look at the, the first example here, if you go around the outside, you can get all but one dot. And you might think, okay, well, you just got to connect three. So, you know, what if we go down and over and then up? And you're still always going to leave one dot. Unless you change the way you think. And you think outside the box, which I know is cliche and it's trite. But if you go outside the box and you drop that first line down and then you turn and you go up through two and go outside the box a second time and then over and across and back down, you can connect all nine dots with four unbroken lines that never cross each other. It's the difference between I can't because and I could if. I can't, Pastor Mark, I can't, I don't have an extra half hour in my day. I can't get my Bible and my journal out and read God's Word and do the soap journal process where I write out a scripture or two that really stood out to me and I write some observations and an application and a prayer. I don't, I don't have time for that. I had breakfast with somebody a month or so ago. Guy's got one of the busiest schedules I've ever seen. But he had made the shift from I can't because to I could if and it matters and I'm going to and that was an awesome breakfast to have. Those are like wind in a pastor's sails. And I'm thinking, how many of us, if we could make this jump from I can't because to I could if, if we think outside the box, if we say, you know, I don't need to do this or I don't have to do that. This is more important. Make the main thing the main thing and pursue it wholeheartedly. So I want to encourage you with that. And I want to come back to the heart of a disciple that breaks for the things that breaks God's heart. The heart of a disciple breaks for the things that break God's heart. And there's one or two clear applications from this. Maybe you're heartbroken today over your own sin and you recognize you've got some work to do. I want to encourage you to lean into that. Don't step back from it. And maybe you've been down that road and you have confessed and you have experienced healing and you have experienced forgiveness and cleansing and you feel the Spirit of God nudging you to take the next step like David did in Psalm 51 in proclaiming his goodness in in helping unredeemed sinners come home. And I want to encourage you, if you haven't picked one of these up and started this process, I want to encourage you to start this process today. We've 
We've got these here. If you're in the, in the building, you can pick one of these up before you leave. It's the Banding Together Journal. It's got everything we talked about, and it's got the format for a small group meeting. You can do this one-on-one, or you can do this in a small group of three to five people. But it's specifically designed to address the top three drivers for spiritual growth in the life of a believer. Do you know what they are? Time in the Word, engaging God on a regular basis at least four times a week, confession of sin, and prayer for the lost. That's your agenda every week with your banding together group. You talk about what God has been doing and saying to you in his word. You hold each other accountable. You confess any sins. I lost my patience here. I looked at something I shouldn't have there. Or I lied about this. Or whatever the case might be. You go through that. And then you pray for the lost. You pray for lost people. And as you do, God works in your heart. And creates opportunities for you to share your faith with them, for you to invite them to be part of a group. And every one of these groups, I say, is born pregnant. Like, the goal here is not to grow a big, huge group. The goal here is to grow a lot of little groups. Because there are things that happen in the transparent space of a small group of two to six people that don't happen in a group of 12 or 20 or 50. And so it's very strategic, and that's why I keep pounding away on this. And I'm not going to stop until we have the vast majority of our people in groups spending time in God's word on a regular basis. I love you too much to just talk about this a time or two and set it down. Every single person that I have talked to that has done this has thanked me. And so if you haven't, please do. And if you're watching online, just send me an email, mark, M-A-R-C, at linwoodchurch.org, or call the office this week. We'll get a journal in your hands. You can swing by and pick one up. You can get started on this. You don't have to catch up. You can start day one whenever you get the journal and begin right there. And if you want to be a part of a group, we'll help you get be a part of a group or to encourage you to start a group. There's a training next Sunday in the afternoon. You can join us online or you can join us in person and learn how to start your own group and lead your own group and facilitate your own group. And if you've been participating in a group for a little while and you feel God nudging you to start your own group out of that, then come, be trained, be empowered, be equipped. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word. We are so grateful for your forgiveness. We are so grateful for your compassion and your mercy and your unfailing love. We are so thankful that you love us too much to leave us in sin, to leave us with unrepentant sin in our lives to leave us as unredeemed sinners. You love us too much to let us wander through life, slaves to sin, to things that hurt us and hurt others. And so we thank you, God, for your word. We thank you that your heart breaks over our sin and over unredeemed sinners. And we pray, God, that it would break our hearts as well and that you would lead us next step. Every single person hearing this prayer has a next step to take with you. And I pray that we would be a people who respond in faith, who take those steps, and who experience grace and forgiveness and healing, and get a front line to miracles as those things happen in other people's lives. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we